The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Sorry for the very small screen. I thought I had PowerPoint on my phone, for one, but even before that, all week long I have been without my adapter, and I thought for sure it must be in the room. And it's not here, so I can't, can't uh, do what I had anticipated. Isaiah 52. Please open your Bibles there. We are just beginning this extremely rich passage more than any other in the entire Old Testament. It just unpacks for us this merciful, kind work of our servant Savior who came to seek and to save people like us. As I was preparing, I I recalled Philippians chapter 2 which is where I'm going to start today. Just listen to how Paul talks about what Christ did on our behalf. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be exploited, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being Born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that this Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God our Father. Father, as we now enter into your book, into this beautiful chapter of hope that unpacks for us how it is that Jesus becomes exalted over all things, how he became obedient to the point of death, triumphing, through great tribulation on our behalf. I pray that our hearts would soar with gratitude and hope. I pray that you would use these moments, building off the sermon this morning, to rekindle our first love. Such a beautiful reminder. May the portrait of your love for us move us. Through Jesus I pray. Amen. Fifty-two thirteen through 50, through fifty-three twelve. That's that's the unit that we're tackling here. Even though the the chapter division comes where it does, you can see in the ESV they they put the title over fifty-two thirteen. And as I look at the passage, I'm seeing. Um, three main units. The first and last are in the words of God. He's the one who's talking to us. The prophets 
words actually being overcome by God's words. And then in the middle unit, we hear the voice of the prophet himself. So God opens, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So, part one, in these first three verses, the Lord himself foresees the exaltation of his servant. And how is it going to come about? Through suffering. Then in the the final portion, verses 11 and 12, you can let your eyes go down there. God picks up and talks again. Out of the anguish of my servant's soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, his own knowledge, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion in the many, and he shall divide as spoil the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Those are the words of Yahweh. Yahweh promises to reward his servant's substitutionary suffering with the prize of a global people. And I hope you're a part of that people today. And then in the middle, we have the prophet's voice from chapter 53.1 to 53.10. He's talking to us, describing the nature of this substitutionary act. So last week, we got through verse 13. One verse heard such rich reflection from all of you on what you're bringing to the table as we look at this text. And we pick up there... He shall be high and lifted up, verse 13 of chapter 52 says. He shall be exalted. So we noted two possibilities. What were the two possibilities for understanding his being high and lifted up, exalted? Anybody? Lifted up on the cross or lifted up on the throne. Lifted up on the cross or lifted up on the throne. And so we we looked at this phrase, high and lifted up, and found that it occurs two other times in Isaiah suggesting which of those two, that he'll be high and lifted up on the cross or high and lifted up on the throne after the cross. Which was it? Pardon? Throne, yes. So, as in Isaiah chapter 6, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. He was high and lifted up. So our goal is always to figure out what does Isaiah mean by his words. Both are true. He was lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness and he was exalted on the throne. But in this text, it seems as though he's saying, I'm going to portray for you the exaltation of the servant king. And what's amazing is the means of this exaltation is through this tragic suffering. So that's where we're going to start today. Verses 14 and 15, the means of this servant savior's exaltation. How does it come about? How does he make his way to the throne? And and that text I read in Philippians said he obeyed even to the point of death, death on a cross. Now God has highly exalted him. So his, his path to triumph comes through tribulation. And the point of this text 
is not just to be awed by the suffering of the servant, but to see it as the means through which he took the throne on our behalf. So let's look at 14 and 15. As many were astonished at you, God says to his servant, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind, as many as were astonished at you, so shall he sprinkle many. Many astonished, many sprinkled. Specifically, many nations. So throughout the Old Testament, the term that in the New Testament is always translated Gentiles, 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 is this word here. This is the word for nations. That's what we're talking about. This, this group that may or may not include, if, when it stands directly against the Jews, it's Jews and the other nations. Or on its own, it can include even the Jews. He sprinkles many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So be bold. If you have questions, raise your hands. So we're getting there. Good question. So marred beyond human semblance. Already we've seen an echo, an, an illusion, an anticipation of this earlier. But it, it really is graphic for us. It, it the gospel accounts, when they're unpacking the passion of the Christ, they don't go into the detail that, that Mel Gibson went into in his movie, The Passion of the Christ. He shows us things that we read about outside of Scripture, that we read about in detail of how the, the Romans, what did crucifixion actually look like? What did it mean when they would flog someone? And the gospel accounts say he was flogged. And then they put him on the cross and they nailed his hands and his feet. And it seems to assume that the people who are reading this, they know what it looks like. And this, though, takes us there at a level that I don't find even in the New Testament, that, that he was marred beyond human semblance. I don't use that language He didn't resemble a human in light of how much he was marred. So earlier in Isaiah 50, we we saw this, this verse. The servant was talking, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I had not my, I held not my face from disgrace and spitting anticipation of the nature of what he was going to go through. Here, he's going to be wounded in such a way that he doesn't even look like a human. Now, I was a little surprised, but it it was a picture for me. Um, In Malachi chapter 1, it talks about the type of animal, lamb, that is legitimate to be offered as a sacrifice. What it says is, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord one that is blemished. That's the same word for one that is marred. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. So why are you giving me a blemished animal? Now, 
the significance of being blemished or not blemished is high. Because the animal had to be unblemished that was going to be offered as a sacrifice because the point is that you've got a substitute here. And when the animal is offered on the altar, it has to be clear that this animal is not being um, offered or slain because the animal itself has a problem. But rather, when they would hold the ears of this animal or hold the horns of this animal, the sinner would say, you are me. And the animal would all of a sudden like become a substitute, take on the identity of the person. But the unblemishedness of the animal would, in the process of the sacrifice, also be counted to the sinner. Now, when Jesus died, his physical being took on the form of one. It's like all the sins that he was bearing are being captured in his visible body. So that it's as if he wasn't worthy to be a substitute because he became the blemished lamb. But his blemishness was because of all of us. He wasn't dying for his own sinfulness. He was indeed dying for our sinfulness. He was bearing our blemishes. And every blow that struck his back and every nail that went into his hands and into his feet, it was a picture that he was vile, that he was sinful. He couldn't have stood as a a substitute for anyone else because he became like one of us. That's the point. We couldn't stand as the substitute for anyone else. He fully identified with us, even taking our sin upon His own being, so that had He been the Lamb, it would have looked like He He couldn't have operated as the unblemished substitute because He was marred. But ultimately, He was clean. And He took the form of one who was blemished, even in his body, so that the the two thieves that are next to him, they were there and they recognized they were there because of their own sinfulness. They're getting their due, and each of us will get our due unless we, by faith, look to the substitute who then in turn can stand and, and bear all that fiery wrath of God in our place. Sprinkle. Jean? Um, is it, am I making it weaker or something then if I look at Christ himself was the perfect spotless lamb, the, the, the sacrifice without blemish. And just as you, you know, made blood and cut it up and this part went here and that part went there, Christ wasn't actually cut, but I mean, he wasn't cut up into pieces and weighed and this and that. So, am I making it look less weak to say, well, this was like sort of how they tear apart the lamb? So, so how much should we compare the actual crucifixion of the Christ, the the elements that um, he endured, whether it's the um, crown on his head, the slashes in his body? 
the nailing, are we supposed to actually picture the slaughtering of the lamb? It does not, what he endured, I, I think it's better to just see it as representative rather than to try to identify, um, look, just what happened to the lamb happened to him because we don't see the exact similarity. There isn't a skinning. There isn't a uh, taking out of the fatty parts and burning them on the altar. There isn't, exactly like you said, there isn't the dicing up of his body. There isn't the boiling of meat. None of that happened, but, but he, he's undergoing um, representatively, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's enduring. It's, it's more... Um, Remember the lamb, as you know, that was just a picture. All that's happening here was just a pointer to the, to the horrific realities of slaughter that the Romans were bringing on sinners. And Jesus endured that on our behalf. Brother David. So when an animal was slaughtered, it was a rather rapid action and the animal Neck, neck was the neck was slit. It it was rapid, rapid death. Similarly, died, and yet his was an, a much longer, agonizing <coughs> death than ours. Yeah. So I, you know, I think that the flogging, the insults, and all, and the being nailed to the cross are all part of. Is dying, and he died dead. <laughs> he died to death. <laughs> it was a final fate, and so even building off of that, the stretching out of his death, I think it's another pointer to the fact that um, we're supposed to see the slaughter of the lambs as merely a a picture that anticipates. Uh, even a, a more horrific, extensive process of death that Jesus had to undergo. I've got a question where you started on verse 13. Yeah. But actually, I had this thought last week. Okay. You started there again this week, so i got to bring it up. If you ask is two things. It could be the picture of Christ on the cross when the serpent lifted up, or that it's God Almighty is a reference that shows that it's Him. And I'm thinking early in this book, uh, we were told in chapter 7 that unto us a sign will be given that a, a child will be born and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And over in 9, this child born to us is going to be Almighty God, the everlasting Father. Yeah. So to me, Having read that and getting to that verse, why don't we see it as both that this is God Almighty, that one born of a virgin that will be the Savior of the world? The whole book of Isaiah, you, you took us back to the beginning, and you're right. From the beginning of the book, there's this um, strange anticipation, strange only if... I mean, from our lenses, for the New Testament side, uh, we expect it. We've got a, 
a full understanding of the, of the idea of a trinity. And yet from the very beginning of this book, the servant suffering man king is being equated both by name and by function with Yahweh himself so that Yahweh who promises to save in the future, how will he save? He does it through his person who is in full identity, who, ha- who bears his name, and who represents the Godhead in bodily form completely. So we're going to see allusions to those texts in just a second that are drawing together this idea that the very one who is being slaughtered is not just representing God, but that he's in some way one with Yahweh himself. Great insight. There was another one more hand. Go ahead, Scott. I just wanted to thank you just for what you had said about the blemish. It was a sweet thought to me that in, in, uh, so in the Old Testament you have the lamb that externally seems unblemished, but God looks upon the heart. And now with Christ we have an externally blemished Christ, but internally unblemished, perfect heart, yet externally he looks blemished. Yes. Yeah, very sweet. Thank you. Sprinkled. Sister Lynn. Christ as the shepherd king and the lamb brought together both the leader and he leads through serving. And we see his serving through his full identity with the lamb. That's good. Thank you. Sprinkling. Anything in the background of your minds uh, make any connection there with sprinkling? Yes. Okay, Leviticus. Lots of blood, lots of blood sprinkling. Okay, let's consider such things. So sprinkling is related specifically to cleansing. So the blood of a substitutionary animal has the ability to almost be like a sponge where the blood hits The blood sucks up any impurity. And the impurity could be both um, ceremonial, more pageantry, pictorial, or it could deal with moral impurity like sin. But the blood is like a sponge. What it touches, it sucks it up and takes away the impurity that's there. So three texts that I'll draw attention to. There's many, many more like Deborah noted, he shall sprinkle this blood seven times on him who is to be cleansed from a leprous disease, and he shall pronounce him clean. The blood from this substitutionary animal identifies this man who once was sick is no longer sick, and the blood is representative 
that he's been cleansed. He's been addressed fully, fully clean. Now, Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement. He shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for the altar which has been carrying all this defiled meat for an entire year. The, The sins of the people put on the beasts. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it. That's how he does it. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and it's usually the sprinkling of blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. How about New Covenant? If the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, the way the ESV rendered this, hard to see, it sounds like it's the sprinkling, sorry, the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of people with the ashes of the heifer. But I think it's the sprinkling of the people with the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer. Both are sprinkled. And it brings about cleansing. And it's being compared then to the blood of Jesus. So there's lots of passages that mention this, but if, and if we don't have sprinkling in the back of our mind and understand that we're talking about cleansing, we're talking about making ourselves right with God, and the blood, the blood ritual is what brings it about, we'll, we'll miss it. Since we've, we have this confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus... Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What Sprinkled how? Sprinkled with what? Sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. You've come to Mount Zion, text we've looked at many times, to the city of the living God. You, church, are gathered right now. Your identity, your, your new birthright is in the heavenly Jerusalem that will ultimately come to earth in the new heavens and the new earth. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and you've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks better a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Christ is ringing out for eternity Done. Addressed. Sin is canceled. So, we ask ourselves, how is it that Jesus is highly exalted? Well, just as many were astonished at Him, awed by His appearance, so too many nations are going to be sprinkled. And all of a sudden, we see this... In, in my mind, this, this bringing in of a theme that's just been pervasive through the book, that it's not just the servant Savior coming to help ethnic Jews, but it's too light a thing that He would just help them. He wants to, to fill up the glory and the presence of God with people from every tongue and tribe and nation. The sprinkling, the atoning of many nations. And so we're reading this text, Isaiah 53, now through this global lens. We're talking about a global exaltation and a global 
healing, forgiveness, a global reworking. It's not, it's not limited. Isaiah's vision is, is from sea to sea, all those. It's for the world. It's about the overcoming of Adam's curse, not just the sins of one people called Israel. That's what he came for. And the means of his triumph is through a deep tribulation that will result in the sprinkling, the cleansing of many nations. Now he keeps going. He mentions the nations and he says, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Okay. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So, so much of the book has been Isaiah addressing his blind and deaf audience, who have eyes but can't see, ears but can't hear, they can't understand because they have a spiritual disability. But now we have kings related to the nations, who all of a sudden never were given the word directly, and yet they see the beauty and the glory of God. Who never heard the word directly, the Old Testament wasn't given to them. And yet, they understand. It reminds me of Romans chapter 2 where 2 and 3 where we first read this for all who sinned without the law will perish without the law and all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law so you've got two groups those that were born under the law like Jesus as a Jew under the law of Moses and then those that were born without the law not under the mosaic covenant and whatever the law says, chapter 319, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. It's directly addressing the Jews. And yet in their very failure to honor God, to hear and to see, all of a sudden it says, every mouth will be stopped. Every mouth in all the world is stopped. The whole world is held accountable to God, for by works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since all the law has done is bring a knowledge of sin. So, all the world is without the law, without the revelation of God, without the guidance of God. What does it look like to follow me? I'll give it to you. I'll, I'll clarify. What does love of God look like? How am I to love? And God gives them all these commandments to give clarity. And yet they don't heed. They don't follow. And if the people who are given the clear word can't honor God with their lives, then those who never got the word are all the more condemned and their mouths are shut, recognizing their ultimate guilt. So then Jesus becomes the answer to both those who were under the law and those who were not under the law. He's the only means of salvation for all. Both Jew and Greek alike need help. So there was a, there was a hand. Yes. I was wondering if you could back up the first part of verse 15. 
Right. So what's at stake with startle is there's two different possible meanings, one that's found outside the Bible and one that's found in the Bible. And sprinkle is the common way it's handled within the Scripture. And yet many people have proposed that um, the context suggests a different, the, the secondary use of the word that we actually don't find elsewhere in the Scripture itself and in related languages for startle. And that um, what's at stake is the, not the atonement, the sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of many nations, but rather the arousal of many nations to wake up. And while the um, while the I could make sense of a startle verb, the fact that it's not used this way in Scripture, and the fact that the context is about a, a lamb being slaughtered on behalf of others, it's substitutionary, that draws me right into the common use of this word in Leviticus. So sprinkle seems more likely to me, just as the ESV followed. Isn't, if you go back and really back up, isn't the entire narrative of Israel a reenactment of Adam's sin? And so therefore, the sprinkling, ultimately the sprinkling depicted has to relate to all nations. Because, and then Jesus, you know, so the question was, isn't there some sense in which the nation of Israel is somehow called to be and do what Adam was supposed to be and do? Adam was the first human. He's called to represent, reflect, and resemble God. He's an imager of God. And the goal was that the, the glory of God worked out through them as they surrendered to His will would be able to fill the whole earth with, with God's glory. That, they would rep- that Adam and all humans would represent Him. Well, Adam failed. There's 70 families coming out of the flood that are filled with sin after the Tower of Babel. And yet one of them then is set apart as if it's a new creation, a new start, a new Adam. That the nation is a picture of Adam called to reflect, resemble, and represent God. And just as Adam was created outside of the garden and then placed into the garden, God birthed Israel outside of Israel. They became a nation in Egypt, and then he put them into their own land. The the guardian cherub, on the east side of the Garden of Eden, with a flaming sword, you cannot come in. Well, Joshua meets a guardian with a flaming sword on the east side of the promised land. And he declares, this land is holy to me, and that's the way they enter in. Eden was on a mountain. Exodus 15 celebrates that where God is leading Israel through the Exodus is to His holy mountain. 
So there's parallels. And that Israel is now supposed to collectively be a representative of what true humanity was supposed to be. And yet, just as Adam got kicked out of his paradise, Israel, the representative that's supposed to be like Adam, showing what true humanity is supposed to be, they true, they too will get kicked out of their promised land. So yes, there's a parallel here that, that in some way, Israel's story is Adam's story. And sadly, rather than doing what Adam should have done, they do what Adam did and both both get kicked out. And Jesus then comes not only as the ultimate Israelite, but as the ultimate Adam. He's the last Adam, not the second. There's many second and third and fourth Adams. That is, representatives who were called to be and do what Adam was supposed to be and do, but all of them failed. He's the last Adam, the ultimate human, who operates then on behalf not only of Israel, whom he represents as the ultimate super David, the son of David, but as the representative for the whole world. Yes. I'm a far cry from king, right? But I started, I started reading... Your last name is David. So. <laughs> I started reading the Bible a year before I was a Christian. And uh, I was super critical and judgmental about every text that I read. And it wasn't until my heart was sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ that's good that's good to to stop speaking out against and all of a sudden have a disposition that says who am I it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1 18 that the cross is folly foolishness to the rest of the world. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And yet he, he, he's going about it. He's becoming triumphant in a way that uh, to the self-autonomous soul that all of us are born with, we're against having this kind of a thing. But the very kings themselves are now all of a sudden uh, surrendering to him, standing in awe of him. I have a question. You uh, took us to chapter 2 of Romans to show that he was always going to die for all men, which is probably why he's called the father of many nations, not one ethnic nation. But further down in that chapter, where it defines who a Jew really is in verses 28 and 29. I'm wondering, it seems to me that it says that a man is one who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, which to me is a new birth, which over in Galatians 6 also talks about the new birth right at the end of that chapter, that you are, he refers to the All who are in Christ become offspring of Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile. It's if you are in Christ by faith, 
you are Abraham's offspring. And so, according to Galatians 6, because Jesus is Israel, Isaiah 49, verse 3, that's his name, the servant king's name is Israel, whose responsibility is to save Israel, and not only Israel, but all the nations. In a very real sense, if you become identified with Christ, then, and, and as Paul says in Galatians 4, both Jew and Gentile alike have to be adopted. It's not just the, the, the Gentiles who have to be adopted into the family, that because of sin, the Jews physically have become identified with the nations under a curse. So they have to, by faith, become identified with Christ who is Israel. And so in that sense, all who are in Christ become one new man, become a new Israel of God. Well, I recognize that there's a lot um, there's a lot in the church that are wanting us to be um, pro nation of Israel over there simply because they're Israel and I want I think Scripture would call us to recognize the need for Jesus at the center, that all who don't surrender to King Jesus are not surrendering to the true God, and that God's heart is for all nations, including biological Jews, um, to see them surrendered to King Jesus. Deborah? The, the blood takes on its cleansing role only in a context of substitution, where there's a substitute standing on my behalf. When I should have died, that animal dies. And so the... But the blood is a picture of death. And the... One of the reasons that menstruation or childbirth is connected with uncleanness, not moral uncleanness, but ceremonial uncleanness, seems to me to be likely that blood is a matter of life. And so if you picture it coming out of the body, it's, a, it's pictorially being linked to death. Um, the, the fact that a baby 
comes into the world through lots of blood is um, maybe there's something there of curse being overcome. Childbirth is, uh, the pain in childbirth we know is part of the curse, but I, I don't see it directly related to this text. That's, that's a secondary um, image not directly related to the atonement process. Yeah, so the key is that this is unblemished blood. That's right. That's what makes the substitute that's what makes it a viable substitutionary act. And the fact that the blood of bulls and goats can't ultimately take away sin, it has to be a human operating as a substitute for a human. And none of us, because we ourselves are guilty, were able to do that. Christ stands distinct there. Yeah. He, Jesus takes on the role of the temple, of the priest, of the sacrifice. Everything that was associated with what was holy and the process of making other people holy, Jesus, he just embodies all of it. Um, so he's, it's not only, you're absolutely right, it's not only his blood that is being sprinkled, it's that he's doing the sprinkling. So in this context, he's the sacrificial lamb, but in verse 15, he's the priest who's doing the sprinkling on the people. And so, so he's operating at multiple levels. Great, great. Look at the end of verse 15 here. This was Isaiah 49.7, the third, no, the second of the servant songs in the book. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And the you there is the suffering servant. So it's anticipating kings are going to arise and stand in awe of God because of what this servant is doing. Paul cites this text in Romans 15. This is related to his mission. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So this is frontier missions. Why does he engage in frontier missions? He says, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who've never heard will understand. They didn't get the word. They didn't grow up from their childhood like Timothy did, hearing from his Christian mother and Christian grandmother the Jewish scriptures. Rather, they're born up and they're heathen, think, uh, learn, in a world filled with multiple gods, like Paul met in Acts 17. And that's their world. And all of a sudden, they haven't heard, but now they hear. They, they see. They understand. So what Paul says, and I mean, what Isaiah said, why is it that the kings are shutting their mouths? Because they're seeing that which, way, that which had not been told them. They're understanding that which originally had not 
They had, they had never heard. And Paul says, that's why I make it my ambition to do frontier missions. Because the promise is that people who've never heard will understand. Those who've never seen will all of a sudden encounter the glory. And, it, and, and he's passionate to see more and more people delight in this. And all of a sudden, Isaiah matters in a way that it never mattered back then. Like Paul says in Romans 15.4, just a few verses before this, whatever was written in former days, like in the book of Isaiah, matters to us. It was written for our instruction. What this is, is the people who never heard, to whom the Old Testament wasn't given, which is most of us, if not all, in this room. It wasn't our Bible until Jesus came. And all of a sudden, we understand. He becomes both light, letting us see what at one time was in the dark. But he becomes lens, so that we're reading Isaiah and magnifying the risen Son of God. It was written for us. Isaiah intended it this way. As I said in the very first message of this this year, when we looked at that Isaiah was written more for us than it was for anyone in his day. And I argued it straight out of Isaiah. This is Christian scripture designed to be celebrated by those who now have eyes to see and ears to hear. Most of the Jews, even to this day, when they read the law of Moses, it bears a ministry of death or condemnation to them. For only through Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.14, is the veil removed so that they can read it as a pointer to Christ. So right here at the beginning of this text, you've got God celebrating the exaltation of the servant Savior who will triumph through tribulation. And in the process, it's a global exaltation. Those that are at the highest level in this world, this text this week made me pray for our own president. Kings will stand in awe. Yes, it's even possible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's possible because all things are possible with God. And this text says we should expect kings of the earth to humble themselves before the king of kings. So let's pray for it. Pray for it. He overcame the hardness of our own souls because people like Paul were compelled to do frontier evangelism. 53.1, we didn't get to the text. The very next verse, 53.1, is where I'm going to see, we're going to see these 53.1 and 2. It's going to take us back to the early part of Isaiah, and we're going to see this child king who is born of the virgin, yet called Emmanuel. This child king who will take the throne, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That child king is going to be I'm going to show how I think it's, it's in these verses that this is the one that we're talking about. The child king of the first part of the book, he's the one who will be suffering, defeating the serpent, Isaiah chapter 11. That is the one. That's what he's about right here. He's in the process of defeating the serpent. So next week, Lord willing, we'll enter in to... 
53 proper, see how far we get. Lord, thank you that you are with us. You're our help. Thank you for good questions, good engagement with the text. Help me to be a good guide. May you be honored through this book. We praise you for Jesus, who is the triumphant king. That gives us hope, even when life doesn't make sense. When it seems more dark than light. When our prayers don't seem to be reaching you. When, when you're more quiet than close. Yet you say to us, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Because by faith, you are in Christ. And Christ is Israel. And those promises become yours through him. Uphold and help. Thank you that he is the king. That he was on the throne before we heard word of trouble. That he's still on the throne today. And no purpose of yours can be thwarted. All authority in heaven and on earth is his because he triumphed. So may we stand with the kings who have surrendered themselves to King Jesus and give you praise. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Claiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.